Beloved, excuse me, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the main aspects of the fall into sin was that humans try to reach for God's throne. <clears throat> God had made us in his very own image, the most privileged position possible. But as humans, we were not content with that. Instead, essentially, in the fall into sin, we wanted to be God ourselves. And this desire reveals itself in all kinds of sin ever since the fall. And many times these sins are easy to spot. One example from the Bible is found in Acts chapter 12. King Herod put on his royal robes and delivered an oration, it says, to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And in response to his speech, the people shouted, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod apparently liked this idea, for he certainly did not try to stop the people from saying these things. And it says, in judgment on his pride, he was struck down by an angel of the Lord. Now, that's an obvious example from a pagan king. But we need to be aware that as God's children, we can still do this sort of thing too. It might not be as explicit, but it's still a temptation. We can forget our place as humans under God, and it can reveal itself in very subtle ways in our lives. We may slip into patterns of living where we do things or say things that are a step above the limits God has placed on us as humans, where, without even realizing it perhaps, we speak and act in ways that only God has a right to, to do. And that's why the Lord in Scripture gives us various reminders to remember our place as humans under Him. And one such place is our text from James 4, the end of this chapter. And here it gives us two examples of how we can speak and act in a way that goes beyond our limits as humans. And here the Lord lovingly corrects us to walk in humility on the right path under Him. So that brings us to the sermon theme this morning, which is as follows. Remember your place as a human under God. We do this in two ways. First of all, remember that God is the lawgiver and judge, and you are not. And second of all, remember that God holds the future in His hands, and you do not. So first of all, remember that God is the lawgiver and judge. So the first way our text teaches us to remember our place as humans is in the matter of judging our neighbor, which includes our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, before we dig into the specifics of this text, I just want to clear up one possible misunderstanding that can arise. When this text speaks against judging our brothers or judging our neighbor, It's not saying that we can never condemn certain actions as being sinful. And you might hear that sentiment expressed at times. Someone is flagrantly sinning against God, and any words spoken against such actions are then met with the response of, well, don't judge, or 
who are you to judge? As if we can't make any statements about sin. But that's not what our text is teaching us. If that were the case, we would have to throw out all forms of church discipline, which Scripture itself says we have to do. Scripture does teach us that we do need to make certain judgments at, as times, at times as Christians. We need to make a distinction between right and wrong, obedience and sin. Now, the reason why this sentiment of, well, don't make any judgments at all may arise is that our text here this morning, it speaks in very general terms. On the, on the face of it, it seems to give a blanket prohibition against all forms of making judgments. Just listen to verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then at the end of verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, that then leaves us with, with the question, what is God teaching us here in this text? In studying this passage, I see two main options here, both of which are supported by other parts of Scripture. The first option is to understand this prohibition against judging, it's a prohibition against judging in the wrong manner. Yes, judgments need to be made at times, also in the church, but they can be done wrongly with a vindictive attitude and with a judgmental spirit. We are not to speak evil against one another, to speak ill of each other, even when someone is going astray. Scripture warns us against a critical and fault-finding approach to our neighbor and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just think of what we read in Matthew 7. There the Lord teaches us there, "'Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged.'" Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now our Lord Jesus, he describes this type of judging in, in almost, well certainly in, in comical terms to get our attention. You know, imagine a man walking around with this tree trunk sticking out of his eyeball. Uh, the foliage is still attached in various places. As he walks around, birds are starting to perch on this log. And yet he doesn't notice this massive piece of maple sitting there as he goes about his business. And then the man comes across someone else with a tiny bit of sawdust in his eye. And while he's nearly smacking the person in the head with this protruding tree trunk, he still immediately thinks it's his place to reach in there and remove that sawdust. And it's true. That speck of sawdust shouldn't be there. It can cause damage. But Christ says, first remove the tree trunk from your own eye before removing any specks from others. So that's the first way of understanding our passage from James 4, certainly fits with what our Lord Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. 
The second option for understanding this text is to see it as a completely misplaced judging. Judging beyond what Scripture condemns. Judging where it shouldn't be done at all. Judging people and speaking against them even though they haven't sinned. And it can include speaking against a brother or judging him out of perhaps annoyance or irritation or judging others based on our own standards apart from Scripture. We know from the Gospels the Pharisees were guilty of this type of thing. They condemned many of their fellow Jews when they didn't follow the traditions of the elders, the fathers. And Romans 14 likewise warns us against quarreling over opinions, as it says there. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Right there it says, why do you pass judgment on your brother where, where Scripture doesn't? Or why do you despise your brother, speaking against him in an evil way, as, as James 4 says? And then it reminds us, we're all going to come before the judge, the one judge. So in light of that, it's good to ask ourselves too, when we speak against someone, are we genuinely concerned about their spiritual uh, welfare, or do we just not like the other person? And there's a big difference between those two things. Are we genuinely concerned about someone's spiritual welfare, or do we just not like a person? Am I upset because this person has actually sinned? Well, maybe against me too? Or am I upset because I'm just annoyed at how they act because of my own pet peeves, and so I speak evil against them? Our text warns us against these types of judging others and speaking against each other. It warns us also by pointing out our own sin when we do this. It says in verse 12, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. If we speak evil against our brothers or our neighbors, we speak degradingly about them, talk in a manner of disdain about them or to them, what have we done? Well, we've broken the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember what we read from Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We speak evil against our brothers or sisters and judge them in the same manner. We're setting aside this teaching, love our neighbor as ourselves, which is at the heart of the law. It's as if we're putting ourselves above the love of God or law of God to love our neighbors and saying, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't need to do that. And so we're no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. Moreover, if we judge others where God himself does not condemn, what have we done? Well, we've essentially said that God's law is inadequate. And so have judged the law. We've determined that even though God hasn't condemned someone, He should. 
And that puts us on dangerous ground. And so this is where we need to remember our place as humans under God. God calls us to stop reaching for his throne. And you can hear that word of rebuke in verse 12 when it says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. That's not you. The one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So God calls us to be careful in our judgments, to put on the fear of the Lord. Remember who is judge. God is able to save us and to destroy us. And in ourselves, all of us here deserve to receive eternal destruction in hell. It's only by the grace of God that we have been forgiven. And what did it take for God to save people who try to make themselves God, who have tried to make themselves in the place of God? Well, God needed to become a man and take our place. The Son of God needed to humbly take on Himself our very nature. and He needed to bear in our place the dreadful judgment of God on our sins. Remember, your sin is why the Lord Jesus had to go to the cross. See, even if your sins as an individual were the only sins in the world, Jesus would still have to die the same death, a crucifixion. And so it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. That should make us humble. It should make us careful in our judging, knowing that God's judgment could have fallen on us. And this changes how also we relate to our neighbor. When you know how prone you are to sin, you'll be careful to take the log out of your own eye before taking the speck out of your brother's eye. And when you understand God's grace to you, you'll not be harsh and demeaning when you speak to others who need correction. Now, don't get me wrong. As Christians, as a church, we do at times need to make judgments. Scripture makes that clear. But we are careful to make them according to God's Word and in a spirit of love. And in this, I want to quote from the late Reverend Class Stam, or K.S., as he sometimes put it. He had to say this on this point, uh, speaking against someone does not necessarily mean telling lies or untruths. What we say may be completely true, or at least partially true, but we can use the truth as a surgical implement to cut away sin and to heal, or we can also use it as a dagger with which to kill. And the latter way, using the truth as a dagger to kill, is the speaking that our text prohibits. And that brings us to our second point. Now, in verse 13, our text switches gears to a new topic. However, this section contains similar themes to the section we just looked at. Both sections include sins of the tongue, which James frequently preaches against, and also, the root of the problem described in the second section is the same as in verses 11 and 12. 
that root is speaking and acting in ways that should only be done by God. This second section applies this to how we view the future and how we speak about it. It's all about the sort of attitude we take on as we look ahead and as we make plans. Now, in the first section, we saw that there are indeed times when we need to make judgments, simply unavoidable. The problem is about how we do that and when we do that. Similarly, Scripture does not forbid us from making plans for the future. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It commends planning ahead as the way of wisdom. Just read through the book of Proverbs and you can see that clearly. So we can make plans for the future. However, there is a certain planning for the future that is ungodly that places ourselves above the limits God has set for us as humans. And this is how our text puts it in verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Notice for a moment how assertively the person in this example speaks. He looks ahead to what he thinks will take place, and he says, this is what we are going to do. He's sure. And he's firm about what will happen even far into the future. We're going to spend a year in this certain place. He's even confident about unpredictable things such as business success. We're going to trade and we're going to make a profit. It's all going to go well for us, he thinks. And when it's spelled out like this in our text, you can see that this is a pretty arrogant way to speak about the future. But it's actually easy to do, isn't it? You know, we make plans for all types of things. Business plans, school plans, weekend plans, financial plans, career plans, marriage plans, you name it. And that in itself, again, is all well and good. But how often do we not make plans as if they are set in stone and as if we determine the future? That as if we are control, in control of what's going to happen. But think about, how could we say such things? We don't know what's going to happen in life or in the world. We don't control the future. We can't even say with certainty what's going to happen in the rest of today. Only God knows these things. Only God has the future in His hands. He determines what tomorrow will look like. And listen to what Scripture tells us about the future in relation to God. See, one way the Lord sets himself apart from false gods, from idols, is that he can tell us what will happen in the future, while false gods cannot. Listen to example Isaiah 41, where the Lord says, Let them bring them, the idols, and tell us what is to happen, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. 
See, that's what the Lord says about idols, false gods. Or Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Lord was saying the idols of the nations, they can't declare the future. And the false prophets, they couldn't declare the future. But the Lord could. And His prophets, whom He gave insight, they could declare the things that were to come. It is the Lord, in the Lord's power. And that is why our text also reminds us, what is your life? You are only a mist. Our lives are like a morning mist or a a foggy autumn morning. And I was so thrilled when I got up this morning and I saw that it was a foggy autumn morning, just like I had written in my sermon. And there it was. And it's here one moment, but soon the sun rises and burns away the fog and it's gone. And some of you might be even thinking to yourself, there was fog this morning? I didn't know that. But that's the very point. Some of you might not even realize it was foggy this morning because the fog was gone before you got up. And the Lord says, that is how it is with your life. Remember your place as a human under God. You are weak. You're not almighty. You don't have the future in your hands. And that's why words like Psalm 127 should be stamped on our minds. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. Or what about Proverbs 16, verse 9? In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And that's also why we guard our speech when it comes to the future. Speaking about the future as if we are in control smacks of arrogance. And verse 16 states this very thing. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And in contrast to that, speaking about the future, making plans with humility, means acknowledging that God is in control. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. If the Lord wills. And you know what? This is a very freeing teaching as well. While it's humble to speak the words that the Lord wills, we will do this or that, it's also very comforting. Because what does it teach us? Our lives are in God's hands. He's the God who directs our paths in life. The one who bought us with his blood is the one who determines our steps and our future. That's the way of faith and the way of comfort too. And so that's why the Lord Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And yes, while it's prudent to make plans for the future, it can also become an anxiety-inducing exercise. How are we going to make everything work? What if things don't work out how we planned? What if we experience unexpected hardship? 
What if the stock market crashes? What if, my, what if sickness suddenly overtakes me? What if this? What if that? And this is one thing that will happen if we try to take the place of God and try to control the future. We can't. It will inevitably lead to worry and fear because it goes beyond our capacity as humans. But remember, God has a future in His hands. This allows us to flourish as humans. Christ tells us, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And in fact, the very opposite is true. We'll probably take away hours and even days and years from our life by worrying. So he says, if, if God clothes the grass of the field with flowers that out, outdid Solomon's splendor, he's also going to clothe you. And so seek first the kingdom of God. Make that your focus also as you look ahead to the future. Seek His righteousness. Make that your view in life. And all these things will be given to you. For there's one thing we do know about the future. God is bringing us to the new heavens and the new earth. That's a future He's promised. And so we can be sure about that future. And look ahead to that future and rest in that future. Pretty much all, everything else in life is unknown. So God teaches us, let me be God. Remember your place under me. I've promised to bring you to your eternal home. So speak and act as those who acknowledge God as a faithful and all-powerful Lord. Amen.